Welcome to the Shadow Warrior Podcast. I'm the host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Episode 116 is titled G20 and its Fallout, India, the Swing State, IMEC and Trudeau's Tantrums. India's persistent and aggressive fence-sitting, combined with its robust economic performance, is now making others pay a little more attention to India's needs, but it also invites hostility. A fortnight after the end of the G20 summit in New Delhi, it's worth revisiting what really materialized and what India can expect out of all the hard work that went into it. First, the positives. The flawless execution of the summit is something the Indian leadership and officials deserve to be congratulated on. There were all sorts of things that could have gone wrong, including security worries, but the whole thing was done with clockwork precision. In a way, this is unsurprising. Indians revel in complexity, and surely running this event, despite the VVIP foreigners, was easier than pulling off the Kumbh Mela. Many pundits had written off the summit, citing the absence of Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin, and predicting that it would be next to impossible for there to be a consensus based on which a common declaration could be accepted by all. In the event, the 83-paragraph leader's declaration wide-ranging and comprehensive, was seen as a diplomatic triumph, with everybody giving in a little on their positions in the interest of the G20 community. The fact that NATO members had to swallow a watered-down condemnation of the Ukraine war without actually naming Russia has been framed as a quote-unquote climb down by the West for the sake of G20 unity by the Financial Times. That's pretty good spin but it was remarkable that they didn't seem to be bothered by such quote-unquote G20 unity as the Bali summit in 2022. There are more plausible reasons for this quote-unquote climb down. One is that the Ukraine war is not going according to plan, which anticipated Russia being beaten by now, both militarily and financially. On the contrary, the EU continues to be Russia's biggest customer by far, So the sanctions have failed, and the EU is probably fed up with energy shortages. Plus, the Ukrainians don't seem to be making much progress with the much-hyped counter-offensive. NATO could well be on the point of throwing Zelensky under the bus any day now. The West appears to be backpedaling furiously, and they've made such miscalculations before, 1971 Bangladesh. 1975, Vietnam, and so on. Ironically, Portis Biden went to Vietnam after the G20 summit and announced billions of dollars worth of deals in semiconductors and AI, among other things. What a U-turn from the 1970s. Kissinger would be turning over in his grave, except he is still alive. A more optimistic reading of the G20 outcome could well be that India has finally become a swing state. While it is precarious being a swing state, it also has benefits. You get quoted by both sides and you can play them off against each other. India's persistent and aggressive fence-sitting, combined with its robust economic performance, is now making others pay a little more attention to India's needs. But it also invites hostility. There was evidence of this new reality in a backhanded sort of way in Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's hissy fit against India 
accusing it of a hit job on a Khalistani terrorist. Trudeau has his own reasons, hurt a more proper, perhaps, but the Washington Post reported that nobody else in the Anglosphere agreed to support him, with Biden going to great lengths to, quote, avoid antagonizing India and court the Asian power as a strategic counterweight to China, end quote. Even the usually hostile BBC said, quote, on the grand geopolitical chessboard, India is now a key player, end quote. Deep State is not amused, nor are the rest of the Five Eyes. India's transition from non-aligned to multi-aligned has come at the right time. I do hope India does not get swayed by its own rhetoric of being the, quote, champion of the global south, unquote, and go back to the Nehru era, quote, king of the banana republics, unquote, self-image. Pretending to be the leader of the third world and all the NAM exertions got India nothing at all. In 1961, the entire third world voted 90 to 1 against India's decolonization of Goa, which was startling. However, things are a little bit different now that uh, India is looking out for its own interests first and foremost. In that context, the formal induction of the African Union into the G20 is a win for India, especially in light of the stacking of, B of BRICS Plus with friends of China. Looking at it from India's point of view, the African Union means especially East Africa, which is part of the Indian Ocean Rim, India's backyard. Africa will be the fastest growing area in population and GDP over the next few decades, and the giant continent's people face problems quite similar to those Indians face. East Africa has millennia-old trade links with India. For instance, a 1,500-year-old Malabar-built Uru, a wooden ship made of teeth, was found buried well-preserved in the sands near Alexandria, Egypt, indicating ancient commerce. It is in the context that it is in this context that the New Spice Route or the India-Middle East-Europe Economic Corridor, IMEC, is also a good initiative. For one, it is fairly direct competition to China's Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, which has been dogged by accusations that it is debt trap diplomacy that ends up with valuable assets extorted from others, as in Hambantota port in Sri Lanka, now forced into a 99-year lease agreement as the debt payments became onerous. Having said that, and also given the fact that a growing India will have more trade with Europe as in millennia past, it is not entirely clear that the IMEC will take off. On the other hand, there is the history of prized Indian goods like spices, gold, gems, etc. The Roman Pliny the Younger complained that their treasury was being emptied because of the demand for spices and in satisfying, quote, the vanity of their women, unquote, with cosmetics, etc. from India. It's not entirely clear that the India of the future will become or will be allowed to become a workshop of the world at the scale of China. After all, China will not go off into that good night without raging, raging. An article by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times pointed out that peak China may be some time off. I usually disagree with the man, but here I agree. China's obituaries are a bit premature. It will also double down on a new and improved BRI. 
That is a negative from the G20. The upsurge in infiltration and the huge standoff against terrorists in Anantanag, Jammu and Kashmir may be a Chinese signal and that they can ratchet up mischief anytime and that the G20 success should not go to India's head. Given that there is a lot of alleged infiltration into and coziness by the Chinese into the Canadian establishment, Trudeau's tantrums may also be inspired by China. It is the other shoe dropping. Going back to IMEC, there are also practical difficulties even if the political will and funding can be arranged. The port of Haifa, Israel, which would be a logical choice for it as a major terminal where China is a concessionaire, and so does the Greek port of Piraeus. Interestingly enough, Adani Ports has control over the older terminal at Haifa and is reported to be seeking a terminal at Piraeus as well. How curious that Soros keeps attacking Adani again and again. Perhaps he's acting on China's behalf as well? Chances are that IMEC will remain a pipe dream, but there is a, a better chance that the digital public infrastructure, DPI, that India has excelled in may be appealing to many other nations. According to the World Bank, India only took six years to achieve development that would normally take 47 years because of the efficiency improvements due to digitization. This is something the Global South can use. All in all, India gets a solid A- for its G20 efforts. The outcomes, alas, may only be a B-. 1300 words, 20 September 2023.